I invite you to open your Bible or one of the few Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 as we continue this mini-series, Glimpses of Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew. We'll begin reading at verse 13, Matthew 16, 13, found on page 822 in the Pew Bible. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Holy Father, your word is truth, and we give you thanks that you have revealed your truth to us in Scripture, and in the revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask now for the blessing of the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, to come and to illumine our minds, give us spiritual understanding of your Word, open our hearts, grant us the grace of faith to believe the Gospel, and strengthen our souls that we might truly follow Jesus in lives of faith and obedience. To the glory of your name, amen. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Let us hear the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
And truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and to his name be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. At various points along the way in our lives, the time comes when we must make critical decisions, decisions which determine the course of our lives. Decisions such as, at least for for some of us, what college to attend, what career to pursue, what person to marry, what place to live in. We can't always tell how one decision will lead to another. We can't always tell how one step will lead to another. And when we start out, we can't always predict where we're going to end up. But to a large degree, we are who we are. We are where we are. We are what we are at any given point because of the decisions we have made. Critical decisions made at critical turning points in our lives. And that's what this passage from Matthew 16 is really all about. It is about the most critical decision you and I will ever make in our lives. The decision which determines not only the course of our lives on earth, but also our eternal destiny. How do you and I answer Jesus' question? Who do you say That I am. And how do we answer that question? Not only with our lips. Not not merely with an answer that comes out of our head that we learned in Sunday school. But in fact, how do we answer that question in actuality with our lives? This is the critical question. Everything else in our lives depends upon how we answer it. Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? places us squarely upon the turning point of our lives. Now, this passage occurs at a turning point, a critical turning point in the ministry of Jesus and in the life of his disciples. You know, the crowds had had heard Jesus' authoritative teaching. They had seen him heal the sick, give sight to the blind, strength to the lame. They had heard him declare the forgiveness of sins, and, and, and they were beginning to speculate Who is this man? And the Pharisees, likewise, were were growing increasingly concerned and uncomfortable with Jesus. They had begun to to mount their opposition to him. Jesus knew that the time had come, the turning point in his ministry, the decisive moment for his disciples. The time had come for him to confront them with the question about his true identity, the question which would confront them with a decision which would determine the course they would take to follow him or not. And so, as a good teacher often does, Jesus led up to his real question with a warm-up question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, that title, Son of Man, can can be simply a self-reference. Who do people say that I am? The Son of Man also, in some contexts, has the connotation of being the Messiah. And so Jesus is, is, as it were, setting the disciples up. Who do they really say that he is? Just another of the prophets? 
or is he truly the Messiah, the son of the living God? And they, they answered his question. Well, some say John the Baptist, who had already been executed. Others say Elijah, who was the uh, exemplar prophet, the, 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 the preeminent, prominent representative of the Old Testament prophets, who was to come again before the coming of the Messiah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the people were saying some very good things about Jesus. John the Baptist, back from the dead. Elijah, the, the forerunner of the Messiah. Jeremiah, the prophet of the exile, coming back. Well, Jesus must have been a remarkable man, a, a prophet, risen from the dead. And so in each case, Jesus would be a, a special messenger from God a man of incredible spiritual wisdom and power. And, you know, that's what a lot of people today would say about Jesus. A great prophet. Islam says that. A great spiritual teacher. New Age spirituality says that. More and more and more often today in our culture... We hear the suggestion. It's one of those things. Pay attention here. It's one of those things that that the the, the leaders of the dominant culture in America today want to just want to just say over and over again, very subtly, very subtly, very subtly. You know, it's the lie that they want you eventually just to believe because you've heard it so often, and it's this. That Jesus is simply one expression of good religion, among other expressions of good religion. You know, it just so happens that for, for, for most religious people in America today, he's sort of our guy. He's our poster child because he, he sort of provides, the, he comes with the cultural historical baggage of America, you know. But if we were in another part of the world, it might be Buddha or one of the Hindu leaders or whatever it might be. And, and, I'm, and I'm not at this point trying to throw stones on, on people of, of, of other religions. That's, that's not the point. But the, the point is, in our culture, the dominant leaders of our culture simply want Jesus to be watered down as just one more religious figure, one more Spiritual leader among many. And that's, that, that's the challenge today. Just honor Jesus as a, as, a, as a great prophet and a great spiritual leader. But that's not enough. That's not nearly enough. And so Jesus asked the question which makes all the difference. All the difference between a true disciple and an onlooker from the crowd. A true disciple and an onlooker from the crowd. And, and so he turns to his disciples and he says, but what about you? Who do you say? Who do you say that I am? That's the question that's posed to each one of us. It's personal. It is direct. It calls for a commitment. It is personal. It is direct. It calls for a commitment from each of us. Who do you say that I am? The answer to that question makes all the difference in our lives. Because if Jesus is nothing more than merely another religious prophet, 
another representative of another religion, if Jesus is nothing more than another spiritual guru, then he has no claim upon our lives. He may be interesting or not. He may be helpful or not. But if that's all he is, he has no right to assert his lordship over our lives. Who do you say that I am? That's the question which makes all the difference for each one of us. But before you give the right answer, be very careful. Watch what happened to Peter. He gave the right answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. There it is. That is the basic confession of faith in Jesus Christ. The son of man is the son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the one and only Messiah of Israel, the promised one, the savior of the world, the son of God in human flesh and blood. Jesus, Peter's confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ is a high point in the gospel of Matthew. And Jesus blessed Peter and acknowledged the truth of Peter's statement. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own by your own rationality and logic. But my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. Now this is a clear statement from Jesus that faith in Jesus is itself a gift from God the Father. God gave Peter the grace to believe that Jesus was the Christ. God gave Peter the grace in that moment to make a confession of faith. And therefore, we in the Protestant tradition believe that the rock on which Jesus builds his church is the rock of the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to focus on it very much this morning at all, but let me just touch briefly on the last half of verse 18 in which Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We must never ever forget these words of Jesus. They are a declaration of his own faithfulness and his power. They are a declaration of the ultimate victory of the gospel the ultimate victory of the true church over all the powers that oppose his kingdom, including the powers of darkness, the gates of hell. We must never forget Jesus' commitment to his own mission as we engage in mission in this world. Of course, the church of Jesus Christ has undergone throughout history, has undergone all kinds of difficulty and discouraging times. And right now, we might look around us in America and be worried and concerned about the decline of the Christian church and the decline of Christian faith in America. And it's true that biblical Christian faith is no longer the the dominant shaping influence of our institutions, of education, of law, of government. No longer the the primary influence in the expression of art or even social mores and moral standards. But brothers and sisters, do not forget the words of Jesus. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ and his kingdom will not be ultimately defeated. And to the contrary, even during difficult times, the gospel will continue to spread. 
is continuing to spread. And Jesus Christ will sustain and strengthen his church to the end. To that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is the victory of the gospel rooted in the victory of Jesus Christ here in this passage. The question is not his faithfulness. The question is our faithfulness. The question is not whether he will see us through to the end in victory. The question is whether we will follow him all the way to that victory in the end, whatever the cost. That's the question. And that leads directly into the next section. Here's the turning point in Jesus' ministry. Here's the turning point in the gospel. Matthew tells us that from that time, from the time of Peter's confession of faith, from the time of Jesus' declaration about the victory, the ultimate victory of his church, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Mark that in your Bible. This is the turning point when Jesus began to teach the disciples about the necessity of his suffering and death. Now think about it in the context of the first century. When Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, when he gave that right answer, he had it all wrong in his mind. He had visions of earthly glory and power. He had visions of military victory, political liberation from the Romans. And it, that wasn't unique to Peter. That's what the, the Jewish people of his day expected of the Messiah. But it was right at that point when Peter and the disciples and the crowds at large were, were, were hoping that Jesus would be the one to deliver them from their enemies. It was right at this point that Jesus began to teach them about the necessity of his suffering and death. And that's what Peter couldn't tolerate. He couldn't understand it. He, he, he took Jesus aside, if you can just imagine it, just get a mental image. On the one hand, he, he confesses Jesus to be the Christ the son of the living God, and then in the next moment he's saying, uh-uh, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Far, this, is ne this could never happen to you. And Jesus stung him with a rebuke. Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Man's way of saving himself. Man's way to glory and honor. Man's way of exerting power over others. And that would not be Jesus' way. Jesus' way to bring salvation, to bring true liberation, Jesus' way to victory was the way of the cross, the way of suffering and death. That's what Peter didn't want to hear. And then Jesus took it a step further. If that is who he is as the Christ, if he is the Christ of the cross, then what does it mean to follow him? If Jesus is the Christ of the cross, what does it mean to follow him? And at that very point, Jesus began to teach them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus' words, you see, are very clear. He calls us to follow him in his way. He is the Christ of the cross. That means that if we would follow him, we ourselves must follow him in his way of self-denial and of taking up the cross. Now, you see, Peter and the other disciples had visions of glory and power in which, because they had the Messiah on their side, they would win an easy victory. Well, it seems to me that in our day, uh, perhaps particularly among Christians in America, even sincere Christians make the same mistake. Sincere Christians lose sight of the fact that Christ has called us to follow him in his way, the way of the cross. Too often it seems that even sincere Christians being conformed to the values of secular America have assumed that following Jesus sort of guarantees the fulfillment of the American dream. You know, with Jesus on our side, we got the right guy on our side, then everything's going to go right for us. And he's the way to, to make sure that, that we're blessed with a wonderful life, full of, just full of blessing, material success, marital bliss at every moment, a perfect family with no problems, all our children just being as beautiful and wonderful as they possibly could, and good health, outstanding health, until you die in your sleep at 99. You're not going to find that in the Bible. You're just not going to find it in the Bible. Jesus calls us to follow him his way, which is the way of self-denial and the taking up of the cross. Now, what, what does that mean? What does it mean, self-denial? Self-denial is not merely a matter of self-deprivation for the sake of self-deprivation. Right? Self-denial is not a matter, it is not a matter, it is not a matter of making yourself miserable for the glory of God. That's not what self-denial is. Think about it in biblical categories. 
what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, the scripture, and we're, we're going to affirm that scripture, Philippians 2, uh, in our affirmation of faith, he humbled himself and became obedient. Self-denial is a matter of humbling ourselves as servants before God and servants, therefore, to one another. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. What, what does that mean? It means laying down our lives for one another in self-sacrificial love. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians says, consider the interest of others as well as your own. How about this? Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's an expression of self-denial. It means putting others and their welfare and their concerns first. Actually, what it, what it really means is putting Christ first. Putting Christ first. And living in relationships toward others in a way that shows forth the love, the kindness, the grace, the righteousness, the compassion of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to take up the cross? Well, it means quite simply that as we follow Jesus, we are willing to embrace the cost of following him. We are willing to die little deaths every day. The scripture says, the Apostle Paul says, I die every day. What does that mean? It, 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 it means being willing to lay down your life for the sake of Christ, not only literally. We haven't been faced with that. I don't, I don't think uh, in our personal lives. I certainly haven't been. There are those who, who have and are every day around the world faced with the call to lay down their lives literally in martyrdom for the sake of Christ. That's happening around the world in the year 2011. But there are other deaths that take place. We are to put to death those sinful inclinations in our lives. We are called to put to death the, the sinful inclinations of our pride and our self-righteousness and our lusts and our greed and our envy. Put it all to death. Lay it on the cross of Jesus. We are called to die little deaths in the self-sacrificial service that we would offer to one another in order to show forth the life of Jesus in us. You see, it's, it's, it's not a matter of self-deprivation for the sake of self-deprivation. It's a matter of putting Christ first in our lives so that his life, his love, his righteousness might be seen in all of our relationships. And finally, there is a call to suffer in this fallen world for Jesus' sake. And this, this perhaps may be the most difficult thing of all for us to understand. Some more than others are called to endure particular kinds of suffering. 
that are a result, simply a result of living in a fallen world. In, in the inscrutable wisdom of God, for reasons that we do not know this side of glory, there are those who are called to endure the suffering of a chronic disease, for example. Or those who are called to care for those who have a chronic disease or a debilitating disease. There are those who are called to suffer tragic loss and to suffer a wound in this world that will not be healed until they enter the kingdom of God in glory. And that, that aspect of, of, of cross-bearing is not merely a matter of enduring that kind of suffering, not, not simply a matter of, of bearing it and enduring it, but of actually, for Jesus' sake and for his glory, embracing it, accepting it, receiving it, not resisting it. And I know people. I know some people, a few people, very, very well who have been called to, to suffer in this way, to take up this cross and to embrace this suffering in this world as a, as a, as a way to show forth the love and the power of Jesus Christ in caring for a beloved spouse who is afflicted with a dread disease that will never be healed in this world. Or in living day by day with a chronic debilitating disease that won't be healed in this world. Or suffering the loss, the tragic loss of a beloved one. Such a wound that can never be healed in this life fully. But they have embraced it for Jesus' sake. They have accepted it for Jesus' sake. And they have taken it as an opportunity to show others the love and the power and even the joy of Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering. And so in, in this way, as we follow Christ and with a, even with a willingness to accept and to embrace suffering that we would never choose for ourselves, we would never wish it upon anyone else. And yet when we embrace it and receive it, we can offer it up as a sacrifice, a sacrifice of love, a sacrifice which bears witness to Jesus Christ who endured suffering for our salvation. And you know, br brothers and sisters, here's the deal. When, when we face this decision in our lives, this critical decision that determines the course of our lives, who is Jesus Christ and will we follow him in his way? Will we follow him in his way of suffering even unto death for the sake of entering into his glory? You know, everybody is following somebody. Everybody is following somebody. Everybody is following somebody. And they might be following in our, in, in, in our culture and around the world. They might be following Sigmund Freud. They might be following Karl Marx. 
They might be following Charles Darwin. Or they might tell us that they're following their own path. Well, you know, if you're following yourself, you're just chasing your tail. Everybody is following somebody. And if we're not following Jesus Christ, laying down our lives for him because he laid down our lives for us, if we're not following him, we're following somebody whose flesh is rotting in the ground. This is the decisive turning point in our lives. The most critical, most crucial, most determinative decision of all. Who is Jesus Christ and will we follow him in his way? Will we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him? Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your call of grace, which is the call to salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would grant us the grace of faith that we may truly turn away from ourselves and turn to Jesus Christ and follow him to the glory of your name. Amen.